Hi, thanks for joining us. Welcome to the Antarctic Report podcast. I'm Nicholas O'Flaherty, editor of the Antarctic Report, an online portal dedicated to all things about Antarctica. Each week I talk to an outstanding scientist or adventurer, writer, an historian, environmentalist, policymaker, people who actually work down on the ice itself. In fact, anyone with a real connection to Antarctica and a compelling story to tell. As we drew near this ice, some penguins were heard but none seen, and but few other birds or any other thing that could induce us to think any land was near. And yet, I think there must be some to the south, behind this ice. Since we could not proceed one inch farther to the south, no other reason need be assigned for my tacking and standing back to the north, being at this time in the latitude of 71 degrees south. That was Captain Cook, recording that historic moment when he reached his most southerly latitude, having already crossed the Antarctic Circle. It was the farthest south any human had reached in recorded history. Those lines from his book are from the first of 48 extracts in a major anthology of original writings from Antarctic scientists. This week on the Antarctic Report podcast, we speak to the author of that major anthology, Rebecca Priestley. She's a New Zealand writer, educator and academic who specialises in science communication with a particular focus on Antarctica. She teaches at Victoria University in Wellington, New Zealand, where, among other things, she leads the online course on Antarctica, which is in partnership with the US-based non-profit EDX. In 2016, Rebecca wrote Dispatches from Continent 7, an anthology of Antarctic science. While there have been many collections of writings of explorers, this is the first serious attempt to link scientists of Antarctica from the logbook of Cook in the 18th century through to contemporary scientific writing today. After Cook, we hear from Russian explorer Bellingshausen. In 1820, he describes the best way to prepare penguin meat for cooking, soaked in vinegar for a few days if you want to know. In Derville's expedition of 1840, Charles Jacquinot recalls the fine taste of the bottle of Bordeaux opened specially to toast the tricolour at the flag-raising ceremony in Adaliland. From American explorer Charles Wilkes, we learn that icebergs carried rocks and dirt, proving a continent lay just beyond the horizon even though he was unable to see it. James Clark Ross, in Antarctica around the same time, writes in awe of the perpendicular cliff of ice he discovers the front of the ice shelf that today bears his name. Among the heroic age of polar exploration, we read passages from Frederick Cook, Robert Falcon Scott, Edward Wilson, Apsley Cherry Garrard and later still Richard Bird. But there are also milestones from modern science. Jonathan Shanklin writes of his discovery of the ozone hole over Antarctica. Robin Bell surveys the buried Gambertsif Mountains. We read too from scientists who are diving in saline lakes, hunting for meteorites, drilling for ice cores. They include marine zoologists, biologists, geologists and astronomers. The scientists try to better understand the universe we live in, uncover the complexities of climate change and learn how a land covered in forests became a frozen desert. 
Rebecca Priestley, welcome to the Antarctic Report. Hello, thank you. Rebecca, first of all, tell us what it is that you do. Okay, I am a senior lecturer in the Science and Society Group at Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand. I research the history of science and uh, Antarctic science history is one of the things I'm interested in. I'm also a science communication scholar, but also a science writer. So I'm both a practitioner and a scholar of science communication. You have quite a strong and long association with Antarctica. You've, you've been there? Yes, I've been there twice. What years did you go? I first went in 2011. Now, this is after applying to go there three times over the previous two decades. So, yeah, it was a long-held fascination. But I finally got to go in 2011 on a media program with Antarctica New Zealand. So I spent two weeks at and around Scott Base visiting the historic huts on Ross Island and also visiting an American field camp in the Dry Valleys. And uh, when I left, I, I very much wanted to go back, and, but wanted to find a good reason to go back. So I ended up returning in 2014, again supported by Antarctica New Zealand. And I returned with a colleague, Cliff Atkins, a geologist. And we were there to film lectures for an online course about Antarctica. We teach a lot of online courses anyway at Victoria. And if you think about it, if you're teaching online, there's no need to have the lectures filmed in a classroom. So if you're going to be teaching about Antarctica, best place to be is Antarctica itself. Sure. Now, even though Victoria University is in Wellington, New Zealand, you have students presumably from all over the world. For the course, there are two different ways that we've run the course. We have run it as a regular course for our own students at Victoria who are doing it for credit, but we've just pioneered it as an edX MOOC, so a massive open online course. And we had more than 5,000 students from 128 countries, I think it was. So yes, very much from all around the world. Wow, so you can study Antarctica from anywhere in the world. Yeah, and it was really interesting having people from very hot countries, African countries, for example, Middle Eastern countries, countries as students, but also students in the far north, people in the Canadian Arctic or the Scandinavian Arctic, who have got a a similar but very different perspective on living in a cold environment. Last year, you published a book Mm. and it was called Dispatches from Continent 7. Yes, that's right. Tell us about that book. Okay, so the book is an anthology of Antarctic science. So I had produced an anthology of New Zealand science back in 2008. And while I was doing the research for that, I found some really great stuff written by New Zealand scientists who had visited Antarctica because New Zealand does have a very strong historical connection with Antarctica. And I did contemplate putting them in the New Zealand book, but then I thought, no, I'm going to save them for a, for a separate book. I think there could be a really great thing to do on Antarctic science. And if you look at the range of Antarctic anthologies that are out there, and there are many, most of them have really favoured explorers' narratives or narratives by writers. There's a fantastic book by Bill Manhire, The Wide White Page, which is a collection of writings about an imagined Antarctica. But there was nothing out there that really um, collected the scientists' own writings. And the field that I work in is science communication, and I do think that we have some fabulous scientist communicators. And people are increasingly writing about their own work in an accessible way. Though though I have to qualify that, the early scientists wrote about their work in an accessible way and then when things tend to get more compartmentalised and it stopped being something that scientists were expected to do, but that's really coming back a lot now. And so I found a wide range of books, Antarctic scientists who'd written about their experiences, blogs, some published scientific papers that had accessible bits in them and um, so I collected these together, got a few people 
pieces written to fill in some gaps and throw a few poems in as well. <laughs> so a very eclectic um, group of writing, I, yeah? I would say it is, yeah. There's people from all around the world. I mean, I was only looking at things that were written in English or had been translated into English, so yep. that, that limited what I could see. Sure. Yep. But there are people from a range of European countries, Australasia, the Americas. Okay. So you, you start off with Cook's Resolution Voyage, yeah? Yeah. So the first the first section is looking at the early explorers, the, the people who were discovering the geography of Antarctica. Because first, when Cook first went down and he ended up circumnavigating Antarctica, no one knew that there was a continent there or not. And he couldn't determine that. He suspected that there was, but he could never get close enough. He could mm. never get past the ice, the sea ice or the ice barrier to be able to see if there was land there. Okay. Um, and then as other explorers followed, uh, French, American, English explorers, they did find evidence of land. But still, you know, it was all ice covered. So apart from you know, parts of Ross Island and a few other little islands. So they still didn't have a sense of what was inside, if there was a continent or if it was more like the North Pole and a massive sea covered in ice. Any comments about, since you start with Cook, any comments about Cook's writing, the way he wrote? Oh, I quite enjoyed it. I mean, it's very much of its time. Mm-hmm. But there are lovely descriptive passages and it's interesting the way these early writers combined the sort of ship's log information, you know, what the weather's like, where they are, where they're heading, with some quite almost lyrical descriptive passages about what they're seeing and, and, and as well as their musings and thoughts. And it's, you know, it's very much an 18th century British naval man writing it, but it's, it's a, it's a good read. It's a compelling read. Yeah quite astonishing actually what Cook set out to do isn't it first recorded crossing of the Antarctic Circle and of course he he created a record the farther south record because that wasn't broken for almost half a century mm. it took about 49 years for someone to to break that so he certainly blazed a trail didn't yes. he mm. so okay so you've also got the, the great Russian explorer who is credited today now I think it's accepted that Bellinghausen's expedition they were the first people to see an ice shelf mm. and the ice shelf is now accepted as part of the coastline and therefore he's credited today as being the first person to actually identify if you like or, or certainly part of the continent mm. of Ant- Antarctica any reflections on on his writing at all because it's translated from Russian of course yeah it's translated from Russian well there are good bits and bad bits I mean it's sure. all good the pieces that I've put in the book and, and often it's quite a short excerpt I think are compelling enough to sit down and enjoy enjoy sure. the narrative sure yeah I like the way too that the next three they're from expeditions that were all there roughly at the same time the French the Americans and of course James Clark Ross's great British expedition that again created another farther south so we're talking about the period between 1839 and 1843. We have uh, James Clark Ross leading the British expedition. We have Derville, of course, leading the French expedition and Charles Wilkes leading the US expedition. There was a bit of tension, wasn't there, between Ross and Wilkes. Wilkes goes back to the US. He faces a court-martial. He's largely acquitted from all the charges. Uh, his reputation does suffer as a result. I think today historians uh, view his achievements I think he's admired, but he was certainly a controversial man. He had a bit of bad luck, I think it would be fair to say. <laughs> not, not a great communicator, not, a, not very good in the HR department by the sounds of it. Ross, of course, subsequently uh, criticises Wilkes. That doesn't help his reputation either. Ross uh, uh, pretty much makes out that Wilkes did not 
go as far south as he claimed. Well, well there was a lot of competition between those three voyages, and they yep. were all going at the same time, which is about 1840. Yeah. And they were all trying to locate the south magnetic pole, not yep. the geographic pole, sure. which is yep. in the middle of the continent, but the magnetic pole, which is, as we know, is something that moves. Sure, yeah. It's not fixed in space, and none of them were successful in finding it. But there were, there were some quite interesting bits in the... Um, the narratives they write where the Americans can see the French ship and the French can see the American ship and they make no attempt to communicate with each other. But I do particularly like this piece, Drinking Wine in a Deli Land. Appropriately from the French (laughs) expedition. (laughs) So they actually made landfall on an island near the Antarctic Peninsula. And the the writing, I just really enjoyed that piece because it is quite mad. The way that they claim this island for France by climbing up this quite barren rock, throwing penguins off left and right so they can climb up and then planting the tricolour on the top, the French yep. flag. Mm-hmm. And then they open a fine bottle of Bordeaux to celebrate. That's very appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they were hoping to find biological specimens that, you know, natural history specimens that they could add to their collections, but there was nothing there. So they were collecting rocks. Geological specimens was what sort of ended up being the main thing of interest there. And of course, James Clark Ross, the writing that you have in your anthology is entitled Fire and Ice, which is yeah. very appropriate because he spots he Mount spots Erebus. Mount Erebus and yeah. he spots named Mount Erebus in terror after his ships. Mm-hmm. And Erebus was, according to the narrative, in pretty exciting eruption at the time. Yeah. Now, it's kind of in a constant low-level state of eruption. Yep. You know, when you go down there, there's usually a loud coming out of the top. But they described a full eruption with lava flow. Uh, it sounded pretty wow. dramatic and exciting. Wow. And of course, Clock Ross, of course, discovers the ice shelf that, that subsequently bears his name. And, and yes. for, but for many years, it's always called the barrier, isn't the it? Barrier. The barrier. Yeah. yeah. No, Scott, Scott sort of carried on calling it the barrier. And for these people trying to access the interior, it was a massive barrier and they had to find a, a, the way to get up onto it. So we fast forward now to what looks like excerpts from, I can see some big names from the heroic era. Do you want to tell, I can see Frederick Cook, he was in the Belgium expedition and I saw Edward Wilson of course who ultimately perished with Scott didn't he? Yes. Coming back from the pole, can you tell me a bit about, can we tell me about some of the these, yeah. these great writings? Well, there was a bit of a, um, a quiet period after that early exploration and the search for the uh, magnetic pole but then there was this you know what we call the heroic age when oh there was there was a lot more interest in exploring Antarctica and there was a real push to try and reach the south geographic pole this time Mm -hmm. and a lot of the explorer narratives are about just trying to find the south pole but each of these expeditions whether it was Scott's or Shackleton's or Munson's and others Uh, There was also a huge scientific focus as well, not a Munson so much. So what I've done is rather than focus on the exploration narratives, I've looked at some of the science. Mm -hmm. And so each of these expeditions had a range of natural scientists, whether they were uh, zoologists or microbiologists, geologists, physicists. And so I've included some of their narratives there. Some interesting stuff, this one by... I'm probably not going to say this right, Otto Nordenskold. That was a good attempt. (laughs) So from a Swedish expedition, and he's writing about the discovery of these amazing fossils on one of the islands that he visited in Antarctica. The, what were they? Fossils of what? Uh, they were tree of oh, trees. Wow, okay. Yeah. So this was, was that a first? Uh, was or do you, any idea? Or 
This particular expedition was not a first because a captain of a previous expedition had come back with some rocks that showed fossils. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yep. But this was the beginning of the realisation that Antarctica had once had a very different climate. Sure. And of course, that's something that we're hugely interested in now. Sure. Edward Wilson, who was a biologist on a couple of expeditions, of Scott's expeditions, he's writing about travelling south on the ship from New Zealand down into the Ross Sea and just his, really his delight and excitement in seeing the range of different birds and the mammals that he sees on the way down. He's writing about them. He's also catching them and skinning them and and Gosh. it gets a little bit gory. Sure. Um, We'd frown on that today, of course, but oh, yeah, uh, yeah. man of but his it, time. It was all in the name of science. <laughs> sure. Yeah, but he's got a sort of very boy's own way of writing. And, okay. and the, these all early pieces are all by men, of yep. course, because yep. it wasn't until much later that women were able to access this, the continent. Sure. So, of course, there's some classic pieces in there, like an excerpt from Cherry Garrard's The Worst Journey in the World. Yes. Yeah. And that's part of their hideous winter expedition to try and recover some eggs of the emperor penguin. I did enjoy finding this one by George Murray Levick. So he was... Um, what is it called? The Hooligan Cox of Cape Adair. Yes. What a great title. <laughs> so he was interested in the penguin biology and he wrote a book about penguins, the Adelie penguins. But there was a particular bit that he left out of it about their sexual habits, which oh, okay. were quite... Um, he couldn't bring himself to... <laughs> he didn't think it was proper well, for that Well, it was kind era. of an adults-only section. Well, there was some <laughs> quite bizarre behaviour that they were finding it hard to come to terms with okay. in the penguins. So he essentially wrote a little sealed section, a hundred, the uh, short document, and he only made a hundred copies and distributed them only to scientists. Wow. And so this was uncovered a few years ago and was published. And so when I found that, I thought, yes, I want that in the book. Okay. And there's a piece by, by Scott himself about yes. being on the Beardmore Glacier and spending a day geologizing was yeah. the word that he used, which cool. I thought was wonderful. Is this on the way up or on the way down? On the down? way down. Oh, so God, this is okay. the collection of rocks right, that he collected. Collection. Yeah, 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 that's yeah. 15 kilograms that they then lugged he, all the way back. Some people have subsequently criticised, it's easy to criticise the dead, isn't it? But some people have criticised him for doing that. Um, but yeah, yeah but some we, we, it's not for us to judge, obviously. But yeah. Some people have said, you know, if he hadn't had that extra yeah. 15 kilograms, maybe they would have, you yeah. know, made it back faster and so on. But it, they turned out to be geologically significant. So And of course, they are in the United Kingdom today, in, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, in the UK. That's right. Yeah. So, and then there's also a nice bit by Raymond Priestley, who's no relation to me. It would yeah. be nice if he was. <laughs> called Ice Monsters, Growlers, and Boogie Bits, mm-hmm. and it's just about icebergs. Yeah. Oh, right. So he wrote extensively on the sort of physics of the ice, mm-hmm. of the sea ice, and the ice sheets as well, mm-hmm. and the icebergs, and it's just quite a nice, very focused piece. This one here by Richard Bird. Okay, so that's called Bird Makes a Meteorological Observation. Yeah, okay. so he wasn't yep. a scientist. He was the American Admiral. Sure. Who great, was great famous a- for a- aviator. aviator. First, first to fly over the South Pole. Yeah, mm-hmm. so the section that I chose is him just making a weather observation. So mm-hmm. he decided at one point that it was very important to get meteorological observations all through the winter. Okay. So it was reasonably easy by this stage, the 1930s, to do it through the summer months. But he set up a field camp, uh, which was basically a, a little hut buried in the snow and ice with the goal of spending the winter there and every day coming up and making a meteorological observation so they had a record of temperature, wind speed, etc. through mm-hmm. the winter. 
he just about died in the process. He was on his own, wasn't he? He was on his own. Yeah, yeah. Extra- astonishing, yeah. And he had a radio contact on a good day with a team at Little America, they called it, with a with an American base. Mm-hmm. But it's a very dramatic piece and it, it's quite funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it all ended well. Yes, but, yes, we're, yeah. we're glad, glad about that, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so in the latter part of the book, is it would it be fair to say there's more of a focus on the science? Oh, yeah, absolutely. This the science in the first half, a lot of it is geographical exploration sure. and just very basic natural history collecting yep. and description. So then after IGY, International Geophysical Year in 1957-58, yep. that was when Antarctica really became a continent for science as we know it today. Mm-hmm. So bases were set up and scientific programs were started and there was really a diversification of the types of science that became done in Antarctica. So there was a lot of geophysics, obviously, during yep. geophysical year, yep. but then the, the biological, the geology continued as well. Mm-hmm. So this next next section sort of takes us from 1957 right up to today. A lot, a lot of it is what we now call climate science? Or? Well, not so much in this section. There's a lot of climate science in the, the final section, okay. um, Global Barometer. So the Continent for Science section starts uh, with Colin Bull, who was a, a physicist. He was a New Zealander. At this time, he was from Victoria University mm-hmm. leading an expedition in which he and a biologist and a couple of geologists, Webb and McKelvey, spent time in the dry valleys. Pretty much, you know, dropped down there, left for a couple of months and yeah. then picked up a very different way than things are done today. Sure. And, but it's a wonderful piece and he's quite a character. Then there's a piece by William Cassidy, an American, talking about meteorite hunting in Antarctica. Antarctica is a great place to find meteorites. St- still is. It's yeah. st- still a number of scientists down there who... Who are yeah. collecting meteorites? Yeah, yeah. just um, why is Antarctica a great place to collect meteorites? Well, it's a great big white place, and right. these black meteorites fall on it. Right. Easy to <laughs> yeah, find. Easy to find. Right. Simple and, as that. And the way the ice flows, like even the ice on the polar plateau is moving, it's mm-hmm. flowing, it's glacial. It tends to concentrate these meteorites right. against barriers. Okay. So you have these sort of little meteorite grounding fields where they're concentrated and you can find them. Okay, makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Okay. On this a lovely piece here by Lloyd Spencer Davis, the accidental penguin biologist, and that's an excerpt from his book really describing his first season in Antarctica and his first encounter with a penguin colony and a leopard seal. So a lovely, a lovely piece of writing. And then there's other pieces, a piece by a geologist, by a doctor who was down there, geophysicist Robin Bell, Neutrinos and ice, a physicist, someone who's looking at neutrino science from Antarctica. That's right. So, because Robin Bell, great American female scientist out of Columbia, she was part of that project to look at the, the, ma- the mountain that's you're, covered you're gonna, in we're ice. We're going to try and just the Gambertsev mountain. Yeah, yeah. Gambertsev so mountain. Yeah, an which entire is, mountain range bigger than the European Alps. Astonishing. That's under under the ice, yeah. I think I think reaches an altitude of it's uh, it's a two two point seven two thousand seven hundred meters above sea level, and it still has a kilometer of ice yeah. above it, more or less. <laughs> yeah, it's astonishing, isn't mm. it? So they were able yeah. to find that through remote sensing techniques, yeah. and so these are techniques that we have now that you know we didn't have fifty hundred years ago. So yeah. it's you know quite exciting the way that new technologies have allowed us to discover more. About Antarctica. Sure. But this last section, Global Barometer, this is more contemporary science and it is, you know, a lot of it's around climate change and it's the way that Antarctica is a bit of a global barometer for what's happening, big picture in the world. 
Um, it does start with a piece by Jonathan Shanklin, who was one of the British scientists that discovered that the ozone layer was right. thinning. This is out of the, the Haley Station on the um, Brunt ice shelf. Yes, so yeah. that was back in 1984, published in 85. And a lovely piece here by my, my colleague, Rianne Salmon, Waiting for the Polar Sunrise. She was a British atmospheric scientist and she was based at Haley. And she wanted over there and she built a lab for measuring, you know, a range of different species of relevance to atmospheric chemistry. Mm-hmm. But what I like about the piece is it's pretty much just a day in the life. Mm-hmm. And it's talking about the, the way the everyday life of an Antarctic wintering over scientist is. So it's got a lot of sort of very mundane details, but it's in such a bizarre environment that it makes for a really interesting piece. Sure. There's a piece here by James McClintock from a book of his talking about the ocean acidification and the incredible impact that that is having. And there's a lovely piece here from Nancy Bertler. And she, she led a project on Roosevelt Island on the Ross Ice Shelf mm-hmm. to drill down more than 700 metres through the ice. And the interesting thing about this is compared to some of the other drilling projects, like sediment drilling projects that look back millions of years, her project is at a smaller scale mm-hmm. and then there's potential for annual resolution to be able to see annual changes in wow. the ice the ice core. Okay, so it's sort of benchmark, yeah? Yeah, and then it ends with a piece here, March of the King Crabs, and one of the things that's happening, you know, Antarctica's warming just like everywhere else, but some parts of Antarctica, particularly around the Antarctic Peninsula, are warming a lot faster than other parts of the world. And one of the things that is happening is you're getting incursions from other species. So there's two things that can happen. Visitors, scientists or tourists can bring things with them. And that's why, you know, what it's like. We're very sort of tightly monitored when you arrive. Sure. Check all your um, Velcro, make sure there's no seeds in it. Sure. Not such a problem on Ross Island, but in warmer parts like the peninsula, there is potential for species, insects and grasses to become established. Wow. But in the marine environment, there's no barriers. So there are species that as the sea becomes warmer, they are encroaching on the local habitat. And one of these species is the king crabs. How how far away is it or or is it already in Antarctic waters? Yeah, I think they're already on their way in. Okay, right, okay. And that's Um, a threat, obviously, too. And that's a threat because they are preying on these benthic species, starfish and so on, that have no natural predators. Yeah. And so they're essentially helpless. They haven't evolved to be able to protect themselves. Yeah, okay. So it's, you know, it's really a warning. Yeah. And with all this stuff, you know, we're running out of time to be able to make a difference and stop dangerous melting of the ice sheets and stop the marine ecosystem changing through the incursion of new species. Yeah. So the book has been received well. It's been out for a, a yeah, little more than a year. Yeah, it's been out for a year. And what's next in the literary pipeline? <laughs> well, I'm actually doing some more writing about Antarctica. This book included an essay from me at the beginning of the book. And when I was in Antarctica the first time and the second time to some extent, I wrote a lot of articles for the New Zealand Listener, which is a weekly magazine, about specific scientific projects. But they were short, you know, mostly about 900 words. And I have got a lot more to say (laughs) about Antarctica. When I was up the second time, I was with a bunch of geologists from the Antarctic Research Centre and GNS Science. Tim Nash and Richard Levy and a bunch of other people doing some research at Freeze Hills. 
And it was based at looking at the past climate there. That these are geologists, aren't these they? These are geologists, yeah, with a geophysicist doing a seismic survey, and they went back the next year to do some drilling. And I'm really interested in that project, and I'm following it up now. I spent a day in the freezer with them last week, looking at the frozen sediment core. So because it's frozen, when it comes out, it needs to stay frozen, and so it doesn't just turn to a bunch of slushy mud. So that, so that happened recently in Canada, I think, didn't I it? I know, oh, that's terrible. Yeah, so it means you've got to work in minus 18 degrees. To Just to go into the freezer and yeah. look at the, yeah, yeah okay, yeah. gosh. So that's really interesting and I'm following that project through and writing. It's probably going to be a collection of essays with an Antarctic focus, yeah. Oh, we look forward to that. What, this year or next year? When, when's publication, do you think? Oh, not before next year. Okay. Yeah, I'm writing it this year. Okay, yeah. very good. <laughs> All right, Rebecca Priestley, look, thank you very much for your time. It's been a great discussion about your book. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Rebecca Priestley, author of Dispatches from Continent 7, an anthology of Antarctic science. If you'd like to know more about Rebecca Priestley, her books and the online Antarctic course she teaches, check out the episode notes on antarcticreport.com, where you'll find more weekly episodes of the Antarctic Report podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a question or comment, email us at info at antarcticreport.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Antarctic Report. If you like what we do, you can review the podcast on iTunes. You'll be helping others to find us. Thanks for listening to the Antarctic Report podcast. See you next time.